Greetings and welcome to the Quest for Wisdom podcast, where we search for nuggets of wisdom from the lives of some truly amazing people. Today's guest is Jasmine Doust. As well as being a close friend of mine, Jasmine is a non-practicing solicitor with a master's degree in public international law and human rights. She is a founding member of Samos Volunteers, a non-governmental organization providing psychosocial support to refugees and asylum seekers in Greece. She also serves as an advisor to a UK-based refugee charity. Jasmine has spent a lot of time working with refugees in Samos, fighting for better living conditions and a quicker route towards asylum. Today we talk about the refugee crisis, humanitarian work, police brutality, Samos volunteers and post-traumatic stress disorder. Jasmine is a passionate human with a drive to help make the world a better place. It was an eye-opening conversation and I hope you enjoy it. You can reach Jasmine through the details that are in the description here and also follow Samos volunteers to see their amazing work. Welcome, welcome, welcome Jasmine to the ninth episode of the Quest for Wisdom podcast. How does that make you feel? Um, yeah, good. Happy feeling? to be here. Oh, thank you. So you are a human. You are also a human rights lawyer. You are also my friend. Um, and you are also a um, volunteer at the Samos refugee camp. Um, which of these do you think is the most important role in your life at the moment, other than human? Um, other than human, I think that's a hard question to answer because I think those positions all kind of go hand in hand in a way. Um, I think being a lawyer is what takes up most of my time, but I'm still, my heart is still very much in Samos with the group that I work with there. Okay. And um, what made you become a human rights lawyer in the first place? Can you explain your path towards that? Yeah, I feel like human rights lawyer sounds very fancy and it's not really... <laughs> <laughs> what I, I wouldn't say I'm like a human rights lawyer per se, but I am more of an immigration lawyer that works on asylum claims with refugees. And inherently in that is a lot of human rights law. So I think that path in my life kind of came from working in the refugee camp in Greece. And... Yeah, then I, after a period of time doing that, a couple of years, I qualified as a solicitor in the UK and then went down the human rights lawyer route. So your passion was your passion was sparked in Samos? It was sparked in Samos, yeah. I think when I finished law school, I had no idea what I was doing with my life, <laughs> which I think a lot of people feel when you finish university. But when you've finished a law degree, I think a lot of people are... Uh, more set on what they're doing. They want to be a lawyer, but I didn't... You'd kind of hope so if you spent six or seven years <laughs> studying, like your whole life studying. Yeah, and then did a master's in law, and I'm still like, not sure what I want to do with my life. <laughs> but, yeah, I think at that point it was, yeah, kind of needed to make a, a decision. And then this sort of fell into my lap is a weird way to say it, but it kind of was, and then everything just flowed on from there. Destiny. Destiny. Destiny fell into your lap. Destiny uh, did. <laughs> well, that's a good way for it to go, I suppose. And um, 
for the people that are listening that don't know what Samos is, which I imagine is pretty much everyone, mm -hmm. do you want to explain what that is before we start digging deeper into that? Yeah, sure. So Samos is a small island um, very close to the Turkish coastline. It's a little island in the Aegean. A lot of people have heard of Lesbos, the island which used to have a really big refugee camp called Moria on it, and it was quite often in the news. Um, but no one has ever really heard of Samos, so I'm constantly explaining what it is. But yeah, it's an island just off the coast of Turkey, and um, it also has a, a refugee camp. There are five islands near the Turkish coastline that have camps uh, for people that are travelling across on small rubber dinghies uh, and other boats from Turkey to seek asylum, generally. Mm -hmm. And Samos, yeah, it's a small Greek island. It's a beautiful island. And in two th at the end of 2015, 2016, when the Syrian um, conflict was really, yeah, it really kicked off, there were a lot of people fleeing from Syria and into Turkey and then into Europe via either the, the land border uh, in northern Turkey to get into Greece or via the sea. So the refugee camps on the, the five islands were housing people that were um, that had travelled across the sea from Turkey. And so you said 2015, 2016. So what year did you go there In, and why? Yeah, so I went when I finished my degree in the summer of 2016 and the reason I went there um my parents had been helping out in with a small group called High Wickham Helping Others in um the Shire <laughs> that's Buckingham Buckinghamshire <laughs> <laughs> in uh, England in England and they were yeah basically volunteering helping to collect donations that were going to be sent to places that um needed aid so um, mostly clothes and um, other call it like non-food items but also hygiene items and they sent an ambulance once I think to Syria sort of basically loading containers and sending them off to places in need so mostly Turkey but also places in Greece, Syria, Lebanon I think. Um, so they were doing that quite regularly going up to this warehouse loading boxes, putting boxes on containers and, and sending them off with this group and one of the other volunteers there had recently been out to Greece to Samos specifically to help with refugees that were arriving on the island so just basically providing very basic support so preparing food for people giving them dry clothes blankets water tea etc um, and my mum was quite inspired by that and so in February 2016 I think it was she went out to Samos for a week or two and I think she spent basically the whole time making sandwiches for people in a tent with other volunteers and then a couple of months later my dad went to visit and help out and I was quite inspired by what they were doing and so when I finished my degree in the summer, my dad had gone out again 
and he was he kind of persuaded me to join him so I went out for I think it was 10 days and I kind of snuck in with the group because the minimum requirement was two weeks at the time so I yeah flaunted that rule but stayed for yeah 10 days and then we were or the group was needing someone to be there a bit longer term to help manage the volunteers coming in and out and as I said I didn't really know what I was doing mm. with my life so I was like oh I'm just gonna I'm gonna stay and then yeah ended up staying the first time for a year volunteering so at that time you were only 22 yeah so that was that was that a bit nerve-wracking <clears throat> going all the way over there like not know did you know what you're getting yourself in for I think because I'd been in the summer I knew what I was going to go for but then when I took on this role with quite some responsibility it was a different experience and it was really challenging yeah I was 22 I turned 23 in November 2016 so um and yeah I basically took over the recruitment for this organization and back then the turnover of volunteers was huge you know people mm -hmm. were staying mostly for two weeks at a time and we had a team of maybe 10 to 15 people back then so there were a lot of people coming in and out and the purpose of the volunteer coordinator was to make sure that people were trained properly knew how all of the systems work um understood the situation of the camp provided them with some information about the legal situation of people so it was quite a lot mm -hmm. and it was also at a time where I was working full-time as a volunteer too. So back then we were distributing clothes, shoes, hygiene items to people who had just arrived. Often they arrive with, with nothing, mm. um, having um, made the journey from Turkey, well, probably much further afield, but generally people arrive with very little belongings. And also we were doing like an emergency response um, service as well. So when people arrived on the island by Tur uh, from Turkey, it would normally be in the night or in the early hours of the morning. Um, and quite often people would have arrived like wet and cold and um, yeah, with, with basically nothing and quite often dirty and they wouldn't have anything for the children. So we would go uh, yeah because sometimes they will have spent a couple of days before leaving turkey hiding in the forest or whatever not having eaten etc so they arrived in pretty poor conditions mm -hmm. so we would get a call from usually the police um of the camp and then we would go up in the middle of the night and provide yeah um, aid to people when they arrived and i remember back in the winter of 2016, there were a lot of arrivals. People were coming more or less every night. Um, so it was, yeah, very tiring working throughout the day, but also getting up in the mm. night, driving up to the warehouse to get all the, the stuff that we needed. And then driving to the camp, doing a distribution, going back to bed for a couple of hours, not really being able to sleep, and then getting up and doing a full day's work. That was quite tiring. Yeah, that sounds pretty intense. And so the people that are arriving, like you mentioned, obviously, they're having to hide in the woods. Mm. What is the like, what is the Greek 
or Samosian, is that what they're called? Um, <laughs> like, what is their stance on these people arriving? Like, obviously, they, they're going to be arriving and they know that. Are they, um, like, hostile towards them? Do they let them come in? Do they kind of just leave them to do it or whatever? Like, how does it end up that Samos became a refugee island? I think in to answer that last question, it just the location yeah. of it. It's so close to Turkey. I think the closest point is something like one and a half kilometers uh-huh. by sea. Um, and you know, you could be sitting on a beach in Samos, and Turkey, the Turkish coastline is so close, you can see the buildings. Um, but at the beginning, for quite a long time, the local population was very. Um, happy to be involved in helping out oh. and people were really friendly and receptive and you know helped provide food and people would donate clothes etc I think as time went on and people became more aware of the conditions of the refugee camp in Samos the old one they were really really dire um really disgusting people were staying in basically a large portion of people were staying in really flimsy pop-up summer festival tents even throughout the winter there was quite often water shortages there was nowhere to you know very limited if any hot water so very difficult to wash your clothes and your blankets sleeping bags etc so um, and with so many people living in such packed um, close quarters, um, people would get very sick. There'd be diseases, scabies going around. There was a big problem with rats and snakes in the camp. Um, and poisonous it, snakes. Um, I don't know if they're poisonous, but they I'd heard of them biting people. Oh, so they're like more of like a pest. Yeah. I mean, no one really wants snakes slithering around their camp, do they? No, not, not really at all. Um, but the rats were huge, like the size of cats, because there's just so much rubbish and litter everywhere. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is the conditions of the camp were so dire, and I think people could see that it was just such an awful situation that they were... The, the feeling kind of changed people weren't necessarily angry because people were coming and arriving on the island, but they were just so fed up with having this big problem that was so close to the town mm. and the the government and the authorities were not doing anything about it and they were just letting it go on and on. Um, and people were really suffering there. So I think as time went on, kind of sympathy for the situation started to drop off and people got frustrated and then I think some people blamed the decreasing amount of tourism on the island um, on the refugee crisis, which... Probably I, accurate. I didn't agree with that. Really? What, the, the, the tourists carried on coming anyway? Most of the tourists that I ever met had no idea that there was a camp oh, really? there before they came. No. Well, I know that people must have that been have like been... quite a shock then for people arriving and... Yeah. I suppose you wouldn't really know, would you? Like, no. if you just booked a holiday, you wouldn't really know. No, not at all. And I know people that went on holiday, you know, I'll talk to people about Greece that I meet, and they'll say, oh, I went to Lesbos. And I say, oh, did, you know, did you hear about the camp there? Like, the, the camp in Lesbos, maybe at least amongst the, you know, the humanitarian community, it's 
the Moria camp was very, very famous. And most tourists haven't even heard of that. So I, th I really, I, I don't think it particularly influenced tourism in the way... I suppose, I suppose they're not really advertising it in the airport, are they? No, no, oh, no. Advertising tours. No. <laughs> um, and it's still a really beautiful island to visit. And you can be there and not know anything about the situation um, and the refugee crisis. Now it is different because they do have a new camp that they built in the middle of nowhere, in, in basically in the middle of the island, completely far away from any towns and villages. Mm. That's a whole nother, yeah, story. It's kind of looks more like a big prison concentration camp. camp. Essentially, I don't know if I've shown you the photos before, but yeah, basically, it, it's yeah. I mean, the conditions are better in that people aren't living in tents anymore. They're living in these. Um, what do you call them, like kind of caravan type boxes. Like shipping containers? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, it's, yeah. Because I think that I heard before about the shipping container thing that I if, I, if I'm not wrong, I think that there was some sort of plan to do it here in Barcelona <clears throat> um, and just build these shipping containers because obviously it's like relatively low cost mm. and you can like, there's an okay amount of space in it for a certain number of people. Yeah. Um, but then obviously you come to the problem of, well, when it's summer, you're in a big metal box, yeah. um, which is like swelteringly hot. And yeah. I remember just looking at, I um, can't remember where I saw the pictures of it, but um, just looking at one of them and being like, oh my God, that in summer would be disgustingly hot. Like a, a normal flat in summer is disgustingly hot. Yeah. Like, so that, I don't know, that must be... And I suppose in winter it'd be absolutely freezing as well. Yeah, I, I think some of these boxes have air conditioning mm. units in them. But, yeah, I can imagine that they break quite easily and, yeah, I, it might not be very effective. I don't know. I haven't been inside one oh. um, since the new camp's been built because we're not allowed in. But Why? Um, Because you have to... If you want to work inside the new camp facility which it's not actually called a camp anymore it's called a closed controlled access center ccac um, okay <laughs> yeah, it's really got good ring to it yeah um rolls off the tongue rolls off the tongue if yeah if you want to enter the ccac you have to be registered with the ministry of migration and there's this whole big bureaucratic nonsense that they brought in a couple of years ago basically to to tell the NGOs that they had to register in order to continue working with asylum seekers and refugees. But they made the requirements ridiculous in the sense that they were just impossible for smaller grassroots groups to meet. So we couldn't meet them. Um, so we don't have permission to work inside the camp. But in any case, we wouldn't work inside the camp from more of like a political stance because we don't agree with it being there um so we provide our services outside of the camp so we have a plot of land um a few minutes walk from the new ccac <laughs> that people can come to to basically receive psychosocial support so we have um it's basically like a community land so we have um so you purchase so you purchase that land and then you kind of installed your services on it or you rent the land or rent, what? Yeah, we rent the land and so we built some structures so that we can carry on providing our 
language classes, recreational activities, sports stuff, women's safe space, and people can get outside of the camp and, yeah, come to a space that they feel welcome and it being, like, yeah, just a nicer place to come rather than just sitting in the camp all day. And so why do you not agree with the, the camp? Like, what's what is the issues? I think partly it's building a this big prison-like camp in the middle of nowhere is sort of basically putting people out of sight, out of mind. And it's it it's just another way of like palming off the problem I think it's not particularly dealing with it. I, it I think if you'd see yeah maybe I need to show you some pictures of the place but it's really not a very nice way to receive asylum seekers who are fleeing from war and persecution um, there's also a curfew I think is still in place so that kind of gives off prison vibes and um, there is not very much medical support. In fact, I think at the moment there may be one doctor for, I think maybe 1,200 people. Wow. On, and then sometimes there's just no medical support at all. Um, there's nowhere to go. You know, I think to walk to the nearest village is maybe an hour and a half, two hours. And when you're there for months on end waiting for your asylum case to be considered, yeah, it's just really, like, could you do that? I have no idea. I can't even put myself in that situation. Yeah. It would be... I would go insane. And the mental health, there is no mental health support provided by the the state. Um, yeah. So is the... Is... Is the government like what is the relationship like on the whole between the the government and the NGOs? So NGOs are non government organizations, so basically like charities, right? More or yeah, less. Yeah, non profit, yeah. Non profit organizations. So um are there ones that they kind of that the big organizations that they have a good relationship with and they don't really care about anyone else, or how does it work? Yeah, some of the bigger organizations Who are they? Um, so the UN, mm -hmm. the United Nations Refugee Agency works inside the camp still. Um, Medicine Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders, they provide a mobile clinic or they were providing a mobile clinic inside the CCAC. And then there were a couple of other larger organizations working inside too. But then they've, I'm not sure exactly, but there's been some new rule um, to do with the registration of NGO staff or volunteers. Um, and they've now lost their permission to work inside. Right. As well. Generally, our relationship with the government has been a bit rocky over the last few years. But, you know, it's fine. We kind of just... Do Go about thing. doing your business and leave them alone. Yeah. Because I can imagine that from from a government position, it would be very complex trying to maintain good relationships with loads of different um, organisations, especially like you're mentioning that you don't have the same, like a, 
you don't have the same kind of vision as they do. And I suppose every different organization will have their own ideas yeah. of what's right and what's wrong. And trying to juggle all of that must be really complicated for everyone involved. So it's like, <coughs> excuse me, um, like I'm trying to think of, because I'm a like I'm I'm thinking of this refugee camp in the middle of nowhere, and like I'm trying to imagine how that could not be like that. But mm. then it would be, it would also be very complicated, and I don't understand. I'm not sure how it would work to kind of put that not in the middle of nowhere and just kind of integrate people into the society straight away. Mm. Like it it would. I don't know if that would cause more problems for everyone overall or less. I don't know. It's it's really hard to know. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a simple answer to it because it is such a complex situation. And I I certainly don't have the answers. No. Oh, what? <laughs> what have I invited you for then? <laughs> but I, I do think, you know, there are a lot of vulnerable people that are currently in that place that should just not be there. And there are so many, for example, there's so many empty buildings, empty hotels and stuff on Samus Island. Like you can, they used to house vulnerable people in um, accommodation like in the town, for example. You can do more of that. You can speed up the asylum process, let people, um, like they're restricted. They, there's a restriction on their ability to move off the island generally until they're, um, until they, their case is processed. So you could remove that restriction and allow people to go to the mainland, reunite with other family members there. There's a lot more support. Mainland Greece. Ma sorry, yeah, mainland Greece. <clears throat> There's a lot more support for people, um, medical support, psychosocial support, more NGOs providing services on the mainland. So having this geographical restriction in place is a big issue okay and can you can you explain asylum like when these people go to so they're leaving turkey they're coming let's say they're coming from syria mm. what is their what's their goal with with asylum like what are they trying to achieve here yeah so like when, and so how do they sorry so like when they start their journey typically what will happen from syria from like start to finish like in the ideal case what will happen from from start to finish so the reason that people apply for refugee status is because they're generally fleeing from their country of origin or their country of residence because of a threat of serious harm to them or persecution because of, for example, their political opinion or their race, their, their nationality, their gender. Could, uh, you, be, could you be religion. a refugee for more personal reasons? Could you be a refugee from domestic violence or something for example so you you are a refugee because of personal reasons yes yeah. so refu refugee status is kind of different to there's another form of protection called humanitarian protection or subsidiary protection it's called um and gen when there's like a general risk of harm for example because your country is in war civil war mm -hmm. you're less likely to be granted refugee status because refugee status is based on your personal risk of persecution okay so for example if you were from syria and you were doing a load of political activism mm -hmm. that was against the government 
you were going to protest, you might have been put in jail for a while, you might have been tortured, you are at risk of serious harm because of the activities that you've been doing. And that would be a potential claim for refugee status. So, re so refugee status is kind of like the the most extreme cases. Yeah, if you want to put it like that, yeah. Whereas another case might be you're living in Syria and the conflict is ongoing and your town, you know, it, it's unsafe, there's bombing, there's a lot of violence going on and you and your family flee. You might instead be granted humanitarian protection or subsidiary protection because you're not being persecuted specifically right. because of an innate characteristic that you have. Um, it's more generic. It's more It's more generic, yeah. But do, it, do both of those hold equal weight when, when applying for status? To, like, Or is it the people who are applying for refugee are more likely to quickly get their response? Or how does that work? It kind of... It, it, it really depends on the nationality and the... Yeah, it kind of depends on a lot of things. Also, what country you're applying in. The asylum backlog in the UK, for example, is huge. There's so many people waiting on decisions. Some cases take two to three years. Some are processed much more quickly. When I was working in private practice, so, you know, representing Syrian asylum seekers, the cases were kind of more straightforward in a way because it was to do with yeah the civil war that was going on so their cases were processed more quickly but then when you have cases where it, a lot of research needs to be done a lot of fact checking very unusual circumstances which a lot of the time it, there can be then what would be an example of an unusual circumstance um I, I think political cases can be quite tricky because I'm trying to think of an example, but when you're trying to, for example, prove that you were part of a political movement and that you're an activist in your home country, um, that you attended protest, you know, what are there photographs of you holding banners at this project like how do you right. go about proving that like that's difficult for the applicant to prove and what is the burden of proof in the court for this um it's basically like the well in the uk it's a reasonable degree of likely likelihood that you are um you would you've been suffering from persecution or serious harm in your country origin so you have to you have to Prove with a reasonable level of certainty. Yeah. Um, so more then, more then likely than not, I think, is in layman's So term. balance of probability. No, that's no, different. that's civil law. Are you bringing this up from the A-level <laughs> law yeah. course that we did at Henry No, I'm just, wonder, I'm just wondering because like, if it's like how high you have to prove, like the burden of proof. Like... It's for refugee cases, it's quite a low standard. Okay. Yeah. So just basically whether it seems believable or not. Essentially, balance of probabilities is more of like a more than 50% thing. Mm -hmm. So maybe 51% chance. Mm -hmm. um, the, yeah, it's lower for refugee cases. Okay. Um, and so then once these people uh, are applying for their, um, their status, mm -hmm. 
And like, why, why do they want this refugee status? Someone would want refugee status in a situation where they feel that they can't go back to their home country because of the situations that they've fled from. Mm -hmm. And by having some kind of protection status in another country, a third country, they can um, stay for a period of time. Um, they will usually be granted a right to work, a right to access um, social welfare, health care. They might be able to put their children in school or they should be able to put their children in school. And they can stay in a place for at least the time being. It's a safer place than the place that they fled from. Okay, so basically it gives them the right to become a temporary or potentially full-on citizen of that place and start a new life, basically, where they're not going to, hopefully, not going to be persecuted or killed. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's pretty desirable for these people then to get that. And... Yeah. So why do why does the process take so long and how if in in Greece how are the how does the government feel towards this like what are the pros and cons of allowing people to have refugee status I think um it's hard to kind of put pros and cons on it I mean states that are members of you know there, there is an international legal obligation to provide protection to people that need it, right? So you have the Refugee Convention that essentially gives people the right to claim asylum and states that are party to the Refugee Convention, which is a lot of states, including Greece and the UK, they have an obligation to allow refugees to, or allow asylum seekers to apply for refugee status there. Um, I think, yeah, it's hard to kind of put pros and cons. Yeah, I don't have to answer that really. Okay, so they are they're Sorry. legally they're legally obliged to they're legally obliged to offer these people refugee status mm. in theory, but in practice, they like why is the process so complicated if they're legally if they're legally obligated to do it. Why is there such delays? Why is it so complicated? Yeah, I mean, the process is complicated because everything is so fact-specific when you're applying for refugee status. Um, th there's not a certain number of requirements that you need to meet per se. You know, it's not a box-ticking exercise where if you tick these boxes, then, yep, you're granted refugee status. Everything's very fact-specific. It's based on the evidence that the person can provide. It's based on the interview that the person will give and whether the decision-maker concludes that that person is credible in what they say. And so when you have all of this to consider, the, the evidence-gathering process takes a long time. Then ar arranging interviews carrying out the interviews and then the decision-making process is really long and when you have thousands of people to deal mm -hmm. with I mean you know one solution would just be to recruit more trained caseworkers to yeah to to deal with the backlog I, I guess I'm talking more um about the UK now which the sort of legal process for asylum in the UK I'm obviously more familiar with mm -hmm. um because I wasn't representing anyone in Greece in the asylum process but 
yeah, more caseworkers, better trained caseworkers is, is important. And when you say caseworkers, what, uh, is a caseworker a lawyer or are they someone who's like below a lawyer? They're not lawyers. Generally. They're not lawyers. No. Um, you, yeah. They're like, so, they're almost like social workers. Not even like, I, I don't know what the CVs are for a home office caseworker in the UK, but uh, yeah, I don't want to. Okay. So <laughs> don't want to be mean about caseworkers, but I've seen some questionable decisions in the past. So, it's, so it's just a kind of, a, it's just a kind of government bureaucratic a, job, basically. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. there's no, there's no specific like legal qualifications or anything to. No, I think you get some limited training mm -hmm. on how to be a decision maker and make decisions. But I think the figures on how many cases end up at appeal speak for themselves. I think it's something around 50. Or, or sort of in the forties percent of cases will end up being um, successful on appeal. Okay. So it's quite a portion. I hope that is the right figure, but it is quite a, a large portion of cases are incorrectly decided at first instance and succeed on appeal. But then when you've got all of these cases that then need to go through the tribunal to appeal, that creates more delay and so people yeah. end up waiting years for their case to be determined so a a caseworker in effect the, the they'll 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 prepare the documents they'll prepare the evidence is that correct and then they pass that to a lawyer no 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 the caseworker receives the evidence and okay from the lawyer if the applicant has a lawyer okay yeah. quite often particularly with the state of legal aid in the uk Asylum seekers can't get access to legal representation um, and will either represent themselves or will get help from family or friends, someone in their local community. But yeah, if they do have a lawyer, then the lawyer will help prepare the case. They apply for, basically they tell the, the Home Office in the UK that they want to apply for asylum and then their, their case is opened and then the lawyer or the applicant themselves will gather the evidence um they might submit a witness statement send that to the home office a caseworker at some point will pick that up and then eventually an, an interview will be carried out mm. and they'll be asked questions about any evidence that they provided but the background for their case what their journey was to the uk why they're applying for asylum what was it that made them leave their country of origin um, and, and led them to needing to apply for protection in the UK. Wow. And so you, you mentioned in your in your previous job, you were representing um, refugees. That was your role to help them in that process. So and you mentioned that not, not everyone's getting legal aid and obviously it costs money to hire mm. a solicitor. Yeah. So were the people that were that you were representing, were they generally wealthy people or were they people who'd managed to get legal aid so we didn't have a legal aid contract at my firm okay. so um they were people that were paying yeah so they so they, they they must be relatively wealthy then to be able to afford that yeah so they're kind of the lucky the lucky ones i the suppose lucky ones, yeah which yeah was a bit conflicting for me we did yeah, pro bono work where we could, but yeah, it's difficult. 
people. Yeah, because obviously you have to, you still have to, the company still has to make, make money. And yeah, because I remember you telling me before that it was sort of a bit of a moral conflict for mm. you because you're like, well, we have to charge money, like probably quite a lot of money to these people yeah. to then represent them, to help them try and escape war and persecution. Yeah, I think it was just after years of volunteering and working yeah, for people for free. It was just a bit of a strange transition for me. And so when the people are represented by like yourselves or whoever it is, is the chances of them succeeding way higher and quicker? Quicker, not necessarily. Um, although potentially, because once if you have a lawyer that gets all of the evidence, adheres to deadlines, timelines, knows the process, then I guess things could be faster so yeah probably um and yeah your chances are better with a lawyer mm. because the lawyer will be able to advise on what sort of evidence that you need to provide in order to demonstrate that you are at risk of persecution in your mm. country of origin and they can also attend the interview with you um, they can help prepare statements. They can write legal representations to set out why the applicant falls within the definition of a, of a refugee. And, yeah, so generally I think people have a better chance when they are legally represented. But that would be the same in any area of law. Generally, yeah, if you have a specialist working with you, advising you, representing you, you have a better chance of doing things correctly you know that's why we have lawyers because they are able to navigate the law and understand it and it's not generally recommended to represent yourself is it <laughs> if it can be avoided if it can be avoided i guess it it, it depends on the circumstances mm. i think you've come to me before with some very random legal questions just like <laughs> well out of my area of expertise and i would have as much knowledge <laughs> on the subject as you did, like, I don't know, some company law stuff. I think, I didn't know, ask a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I suppose you just expect, it's like, what have you been studying for if you can't answer my law question? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what are your, what are the next steps for Samos? When are you going back? Um, what is, what's Samos working on at the moment? Samos Volunteers, sorry. That's the, Samos Volunteers <laughs> is the name of the organisation. Yeah, um, I'm going to go back, I think, in probably April, I mm. think, for a little while. Um, Samus Volunteers is, yeah, still providing psychosocial support through our community safe spaces. Um, and, yeah, doing as much as we can in the small way. Yeah, that we, that we can and next to the camp. And how many volunteers have you got at the moment? Good question. It does <laughs> it does change quite a lot. So we have community volunteers as well, which are people from the um the the community that live inside the CCAC. So lots of different nationalities and um it's really great to have a population of community volunteers as well mm -hmm. to advise on basically to tell us, you know, what the needs of the people are that we're serving um, and to help with translation, uh, interpretation um, and just have a better connection with the community that we're supporting. So with community volunteers and 
the rest of the team can be i'd say up to 20 or something okay. it, it really does change um yeah and what, what about like the solid like the the hardcore so, members like you <laughs> so we have a field coordination team who also do change roughly every six to 12 months people mm -hmm. tend to i would say the average coordinator time yeah spent is um and there's i think five or six so there's a project manager and then there's maybe four yeah main field coordinators five and then there's a a board sort of like the trustees of the organization that advise on the long-term strategy and seven so that's made up of uh, four of us okay okay so you've got a little a little core going on and then you've got the people that come in every so often to help out yeah so we the four of us have been with sv basically from the start two came a little bit later but me and one of the others um registered the organization as a as a non-profit association um originally in spain actually mm -hmm. and then in greece back in 2016 and 17 um and we meet roughly once every four or six weeks with the team on the ground no oh, nice yeah. um and you mentioned to me before that um like which are which are the countries where most of the people come from the main countries uh syria afghanistan iraq and iran and then there's some countries in africa as well eritrea um sudan ethiopia drc congo Con yeah v various countries okay so even because i was thinking at first that it was going to be mainly arabic but that like arabic speaking countries mm. but then you do still have a fair few different languages thrown in there yeah yeah so that like how and also you meant you mentioned to me before that when we spoke a few years ago that there'd been like 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 battles going on between different because there's different branches of religion within that aren't there and there are different yeah. countries that don't necessarily like each other and different groups of people that don't like each other yeah. all crammed into small environments and there wasn't there fires and things before yeah i think that's yeah that was the main problem living in such close yeah it's like quarters, in prison, I suppose. basically yeah like with but really yeah in really horrible conditions but it's worse than prison isn't it really kind of like at least in a prison you have a roof over your head and a bed yeah um yeah and there would be conflicts and and fights breaking out just because yeah i mean it's quite understandable really you know there'd be fights over access to phone chargers for example just because really small things would set people off when you have nothing to do with your day and you're so frustrated by the system you've been living in a really shitty place in a tent for months sometimes years um yeah there would be conflicts sometimes between different nationalities different ethnicity groups etc and then yeah one time well there were a few fires but the big one where a large portion of the camp burnt down it was november 2019 i think and yeah that was quite scary and were yeah. you there then yeah oh jesus 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, it started with a fight, which kind of turned into a, a riot. And then I think you know, people were throwing like Molotov cocktails. Jesus. And when, yeah, when you're living in such close conditions and there's tents cramped in between trees, the fire spreads really rapidly and everything's just super flammable. So, so much burnt down. And yeah, it was back at the time when there were several thousand people living in the camp and it was quite late at night. Like, And um, yeah, we just could see the flames coming from our apartment. And so we went down and yeah, basically just like the like the whole town was just like lit up orange with so much smoke and everyone was fleeing from the camp and yeah some people from the municipality came and asked me can we house people for a few days or like shelter people because they have nowhere to go now and so we basically within a couple of hours turned our community center into like a hotel accommodation which was stressful but yeah we housed a few hundred people over a few days in there because there just there was nowhere else for them to go and it was November so it was getting quite cold the weather was bad so we prioritized women with children and, and stuff and um yeah most of the the dads were very good about it they would drop off women and children and be like yeah we understand why we can't come in as well because there's not enough space and then they would just sleep outside which was heartbreaking to see but yeah that was another few days of no no sleep for yeah. most of the volunteers and and for people as well because i remember we spoke around that time and you wrote me like a little because i bought you a, a little diary thing and then i forgot that you're vegan and i got like a, <laughs> a leather diary and then i was like gave it to you and you thought I was joking oh and I was like oh shit I didn't think this through and then you wrote me like a little a little message in the front of it and it was saying something about being like majorly stressed and like exhausted and everything because all this horrible stuff was going on around and you're getting no sleep and you're just up all the time it sounded I was like it sounded rough yeah I think yeah it was I, I think I've always found talking about how I was feeling really, really difficult, and I still do now, and not really got much better. But I don't, I think one of the things, if I could do it all again, was to take much better care of my physical mm. and mental health when I was there because there was, I suffered from burnout several times. Um, and when you're not your most healthiest self, it does, it takes its toll, I think. And um, yeah, I really struggled, you know, I'd come back for a visit to the UK and people would ask, oh, how's it going? And like, I think I was just felt like, okay, because it's not me living in the camp, living in these shit conditions, I have nothing to complain yeah. about. So I would always just be like, yeah, things are fine. Things are great. But in my head, I was like really, really struggling. And I think when I wrote that letter to you in this diary, it was like, kind of just all came out like mm. some word vomit about how I was feeling and yeah yeah I think it's like especially in those I spoke about this recently with someone that on like a way smaller scale here 
like, you know, like yesterday we're walking around and there's loads of homeless people, yeah. loads of deformed people, loads of people who are like, you know, mentally ill walking around the street and, you know, like open wounds all over them and drug addicts and everything everywhere. Yeah. And like then sometimes it like when you see people like that who are really physically suffering mm. and like living on the street and everything and then you've got some little problem that you're bitching about your, to yourself it's like oh you know I don't feel very good today or whatever and then you kind of like constantly telling yourself oh shut up like get over it like you've got nothing compared to these people yeah and it's like whilst that is true like logically true it, it, it's not you can't compare it's yeah. like they're two totally separate things and it's like I, there's something that I I, I always try and keep in my head and there's a guy that I went to school with um, and we wrote like I hadn't seen him since school and um, he like we wrote a couple of letters to each other like when I was doing my letter writing thing mm. and um, he said to me like Connor um, he said like when you're in an airplane and they give you the safety talk they tell people put to tell the adults put your oxygen mask on before your child yeah. And that's because if you're not protecting yourself and you're not like, you know, providing yourself with oxygen, that can be anything. Providing yourself with physical support, providing yourself with emotional support, providing yourself with mental health support. It's like if you're not treating yourself right and taking care of yourself, then you're not able to take care. And eventually, if you don't, you know, in, in the case of the oxygen, it's an extreme one. But it's like if you don't put oxygen on, your, on yourself and you run out of oxygen, you're going to die and your kid's going to die anyway. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's like it's so... It was very hard, I think, to find that balance of, okay, I need to look after myself, but I also need to look after all the other people because it is often easier to look after other people. Yeah. Than it is, well, it is easier to look after other people than looking after yourself. It's like the hardest thing for some weird reason. Yeah. Even with the other volunteers, I was preaching this. I was saying, yeah, make sure, yeah, make sure you get like good work, not work-life balance, because it is different when you're volunteering in these sort of humanitarian settings, um, and there's not much of like a work-life balance to have. But making sure that you do take care of yourself, you get enough sleep, you take your days off. But I wasn't doing any of that myself, mm. and so probably wasn't setting a very good example. And I think. I kind of left things until they were too late before. Yeah, I think if I could, yeah, go back and do things again, I would have taken better care of myself. And suffering, starting to suffer from panic attacks was an example of of that. Um, never had a panic attack before in my life, and then suddenly I was having them, and it's terrible, and it feels like you're dying. And uh, yeah, I didn't really understand why I was having them at first, and then. Yeah, and then something clicked, and I was like, "Oh yeah," because I'm in a really, really stressful situation, <laughs> stressful situation, not sleeping properly, and absorbing everybody else's problems. Yeah, and that's a recipe for disaster, I think. But you did you so when when you started getting the panic attacks and it clicked, then what steps did you take to kind of try and unwind that? Yeah, I think one thing I am quite good at is when there is a problem. I'll try and fix it. I'm a bit mm. of a fixer. So once I acknowledged, okay, I'm having panic attacks, there's clearly something going on, then I reached out to a psychologist mm -hmm. and she was really good and did some, we just had some um, online meetings about how to deal with panic attacks. Mm -hmm. So I dealt with that problem. How and, do you deal with a panic attack? Uh, it was years ago now. I can't really remember the proper techniques and luckily I haven't had any since, but... 
it's just about bringing, or at least for me, it was about bringing myself back to the present and concentrating what's around me, that what I could smell, naming the different colours that I could see and just focusing on regulating breathing and stuff again. Um, but it was, for me, it was like, okay, I have this problem. I, I'm starting to suffer with panic attacks. I need to deal with this. Had the sessions to deal with the panic attacks and then stopped and didn't actually go back and investigate the root cause of why they'd started in the first mm. place. So I think, yeah, I think, again, if I could have gone back, I would have maybe spent some more time with a therapist dealing with those things that I'd seen. Yeah, because it's kind of like therapists have therapy because they're dealing with other people's problems, you know, and it's like, logically, if you're kind of in a in a position where you're trying to take care of other people who are in a really vulnerable situation, like logically, you would need therapy. Mm. And it's like, like you, you need somewhere to offload that, I suppose, because otherwise it's like you are literally just taking upon all this burden upon your shoulders. Yeah. And I think back then as well, I was maybe a bit stubborn and like not necessarily agreeing that. I can um, believe that. Yeah, you're smiling at me like <laughs> Jasmine's stubborn. <laughs> you know, she, I, I kind of told her about some of the things that I'd seen, been witness to. You know, there were a couple of suicide attempts in the camp, and I, which I was sort of, yeah, um, they were really hard, and to, to sort of be there and um this psychologist basically said that i was suffering from ptsd mm -hmm. and i was like i'm not suffering from ptsd because people that i'm working with have ptsd why would i have it but now you know years later looking back on it you, you can suffer from i think it's called vicarious trauma is that it like secondary trauma um but back then, yeah, I'd kind of been diagnosed with PTSD by a psychologist, but was dismissing it and <laughs> just being like, no, I just need to deal with these panic attacks and then I need to get back to work kind of thing. Mm. Which, yeah, um, meant that I think a lot of stuff in my mid, like early to mid 20s kind of got suppressed and not dealt with very well. But I think that is a nice big, I think that's a big part of the 20s is like, oh my God, yeah. It's just like, letting stuff pile up and pile up until you start having panic attacks or something really <laughs> terrible starts happening. You're like, right, I think maybe when people were telling me to look after myself, maybe I should have just listened. Um, but I think it's that classic, like telling everybody else, like, mm, I think that you should be meditating and not doing it yourself or something. I think you should be sleeping better and not doing it yourself. And it's like, I think that's just quite a, I suppose it's just as as you're younger, you do those things and eventually you start realizing that you're not indestructible. Yeah. And I think that having panic attacks, that does really bring you back down because it's like, it makes you feel like you're dying. And so then you're like, oh God, maybe I'm not indestructible. Yeah. Yeah. It brought me down a bit, maybe temporarily. <laughs> knocked me off my, not knocked me off my pedestal of <laughs> invincibility for a little bit. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was, that's, um, it's a very very intense situation did you ever feel um under threat by anyone or did you ever have any kind of confrontations because i can imagine that like obviously being a female makes you more vulnerable to like attacks and when there's a lot of people who are there um in the same place and tempers are rising you know did you ever feel 
under threat, I suppose. Um, yeah. Um, though, yeah. I mean, when we were doing distributions from inside the camp, it was always very, very tense mm -hmm. environment. Um, and is it like a first come first serve or is there always is there enough to go around to, yeah, to calculate it? Yeah, so we always did it on the basis that we would make sure that there was always enough for everyone. Okay. Because if you have enough for 50% of people, 50% of the other 50% are going to be like really annoyed and feel hard done by, which mm -hmm. you obviously would do. Um especially, you know, when you're giving out for example like winter coats in winter oh, when everyone's yeah. freezing, like you need to have enough for everyone. Um, or, or, you know, winter shoes, boots and stuff. Mm -hmm. So we would always make sure that there would be enough for a, a category of people. So enough for adult men, enough for adult women, enough for the different children's age groups. Um, and so we used to do it in like a, with like a ticketing system. So we would go around giving everyone a ticket and yeah, there were a couple of incidences that I did feel unsafe um, when tensions were high and people would argue and yeah. But 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 were these were they ever kind of threats towards you or was it more that you were just kind of around a violent situation? Um, there were two violent situations that yeah. Difficult to talk about, but yeah, I was assaulted once, and I, I don't want to go into it. Um, and it was dealt with. It wasn't handled very well by the police. I didn't feel like, um, so the kind of distrust in the police protection. Yeah. So you contacted the police, or the police were already there. Um. Yeah, we contacted the police. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't much that they could do, but the way that they treated me, I think, was, yeah, I think, I don't want to say, it's kind of a bit of like um misogynistic. Right, okay. Kind of, yeah. So just like, you kind of brought this upon yourself type of thing. No, more just like, uh, what happened was... Uh, Something happened and then I left it a couple of days because I was like, okay, I'm just going to ignore that this thing happened. And then this guy was then following me around mm -hmm. and who had assaulted me. He was then following me around for a couple of days and it got to the point where I was like, okay, I can't just let this slide. I need to tell the police. I need to get this reported. And then I got a big telling off by the police for reporting this two days later instead of going to them immediately and yeah, basically just like shouted out for twenty minutes or whatever it was. Um which when you're coming to report a crime that's really yeah, affected you in a bad way. Um yeah, you don't want to be just told off for holding off mm. reporting it. Yeah, and so yeah, that sounds difficult. And so when all these like communications, like do the Greek police speak English or are you going through translators with all the different things you're doing? Um, they mostly speak English, yeah. Okay. So overall, like the Greek level of English is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, nice. And so, where do you see yourself in five years? The classic job interview question. Because you've left you left your role as um, the the as a solicitor, as a solicitor, and you've moved into what is it exactly? So now. I'm a freelance writer and editor. Um, I write about immigration, human rights, asylum law in the UK. Okay. And um, where? so what, what do you think will be your next steps? Do you think, is this a, a gateway into something or? You know, I don't know. I've, I'm at this, like the last six months of my life, um, since I've been doing this freelance job, working remotely, moving around to different countries, it's been great. I'm having the best time. And I feel like it's this end period of my 20s um, that I'm finally like learning a lot about myself. And there's been a lot of growth in the mm. last six months. So I'm having a great time. Very happy. So at the moment, I'm trying to not plan too far ahead for things. Mm -hmm. Sort of living this nomadic life at the moment. <laughs> it's a digital nomad life. And I love it. And I think... Yeah, I'm quite, uh, yeah, I don't want to plan too much. I don't know really what I want to do. I'm very happy with what I'm doing at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to keep that up for as long as possible, I think. I suppose you've got like, um, well, from what you've told me, you've you've got a sense of freedom, I suppose, now that you maybe yeah. didn't have for a, a, a quite a while. Yeah. You're not so tied into anything. Exactly. I'm basically tied into nothing apart from my job and I love my job. So... I'm, yeah, I'm trying to make the most of that at the moment. And I have more free time. So I'm traveling around and seeing friends, you know, from volunteering. I have friends all over the world now. So it's really nice to spend more time with them. Mm -hmm. Coming to Barcelona to see you. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah, um, that's always nice. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I don't know what I want to be doing in five years time. Probably, like, realistically something in the humanitarian world still, mm -hmm. whether it's immigration law or working with asylum seekers again. Because yeah, we, we spoke before, like, probably about a year ago or something, or I don't know when it was. We spoke before anyway about, because you were thinking of starting an NGO. A second one. <laughs> a second one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That idea is kind of put to the back of my... You're like an NGO entrepreneur. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I that's kind of on the back burner at the moment. I think I am just concentrating on my own things for now, which I haven't really done for mm. yeah, ever. Well, ever. <laughs> yeah, which is nice. So let's see what where that goes. Yeah, but I don't know. Maybe. I suppose the future is exciting. I don't remember having this conversation a year ago. Did I? Maybe a year ago. I, th we, I think we went for a walk and oh, we mentioned yeah, that. Yeah. And then before that, we were in the Harvester, me, you and Laurie, and talking about NGOs. That was years ago. That was years ago. I don't, but my concept of years is extremely blurred. Why um, is that, Connor? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, my concept of, I know, it's very difficult, I think, to know whether something's like five years ago or one year ago. Um, and I usually kind of work it out by like what drugs I was taking at the time. <laughs> <laughs> then I can kind of like work back. Yeah. Um, but no, but we said in, yeah. in, in our famous meeting in the Harvester, we said that we'd start an NGO 
I said I'd make some money and you could do the NGO stuff and then we could combine. Yeah. I think that must have been about like five years ago. Yeah. Maybe we need to check with Laurie. But then there was a few years where... I think we can maybe kick him out. Don't know what he's going to bring to the table. <laughs> um, yeah, not sure. I think he suggested the harvester, so maybe he can... True, I mean... Suggest that eating places. Yeah, I mean, the harvester, for people who don't know, people who aren't from England, the harvester is like a, a cheap pub, which has got a nice salad buffet and um, cheap pub food. But it's where dreams are made, I believe. It's a bit of a shithole. It's a bit of a shithole, but I really like it. And they've got this really nice sauce called Red Devil Sauce, which is like, brings me back to my childhood. So, yeah. and we like it because it's cheap and it's refillable drinks and refillable salad. Um, <laughs> and me and Laurie both like to eat a lot. So we went there and we had this... Um, business meeting. Business meeting. Um, I don't think it was initially going to be a business meeting, but then we just decided that that's what we're going to do. So maybe... Watch this space. Maybe five years time, um, you'll have your NGO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Don't think we. I think I probably did put a time limit on it. I was probably like, yeah, I'll have the money in a year, and then did not. Yeah. But how's that going? <laughs> how's that going? Well, I'm running a business with my friends, so yeah. that might do well. Hopefully, um, if that does do well, then we can open an NGO. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to start with that, though, to be honest. It's like, it's one of those things where there's so many, so many problems. Where do you start? And how do you solve problems without creating more problems? That's a difficult one. Are you asking me? Was that rhetorical? <laughs> Both. It's a rhetorical question that may have an answer. Yeah, I mean, like, there are a lot of problems inherently come with starting an NGO. Um, but the purpose is or at least the purpose for us was providing people with services that would give them some kind of like dignified existence and yeah, so, something to do while they're waiting for their asylum process to, yeah, to, to go on. And yeah, and I think we've really helped a lot of people over the years. I want to say thousands. Um, so yeah, I think on the balance of things, Maybe some problems were caused along the way, but um, a lot of people have benefited. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's this. It's an amazing thing to be able to help. And I think that it's like when you when you stay small, relatively small, you can operate things like pretty ethically mm. and with a pretty high efficiency for money. And then, yeah. you know, like every pound that comes in, maybe 95 percent of that is like put straight back out into materials and yeah. whatever and you can run with volunteers but then as you move up the ladder and you yeah. try to kind of solve bigger problems you start having to pay people money people start then getting it's easier to be corrupted you then have to start dealing with governments some of those governments are corrupt you then start having to maybe pay charity money to a to make a bribe to a corrupt government to allow you to do something and then it's like everything starts getting all twisted and it's like it must be extremely difficult. Yeah, I mean, if we do start anything, we won't be bribing corrupt governments. I'll say that from the outset. <laughs> Far from that. Yeah, but then I don't know, because I always think like, I always think of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and they just, they, they have like a a solution. Uh, they have a, a problem they want to solve. And like one of them was like, get rid of malaria. Mm. 
And then another one is provide running water to uh, like provide, yeah, running fresh, clean water to everywhere in Africa. And it's like they go about trying to do that. But to do that, to go along and navigate all those different political systems and effectively be some Western organization that's coming in and trying to like to, to, to make changes in a country that has like countries that have historically had wealth that's mm. been squandered and stolen you know which is the same with a lot of countries in the world it's it then becomes so difficult yeah. so difficult and my sister worked doing a recruitment for charities before oh, yeah? um like ages ago like when she was like early 20s okay. i think um and um so yeah she, so she was telling me all about you know like the 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 some some charities are super i can't remember the word it is but like efficient i suppose where yeah. you give them that money and most of that goes back but then the bigger ones you know like oxfam or um red cross yeah. and all those type of ones like to, because they're huge organizations you have to get ceos and boards of directors and all yeah. these different types of things and then when you get that to get good quality people to be leading those often you have to be paying those people maybe a hundred grand a yeah, year yeah. because otherwise someone's not going to stop being a CEO of another company and getting 500 grand and then go and get 25k yeah. to be a CEO. And then it's like all that money starts, the the profit margins start absolutely dwindling. Profit margins, like the, like the donation margins start dwindling and it becomes so difficult to navigate that. And I just think that's what I mean by kind of like causing more problems. Um, but it'd be very, it'd be very difficult. It'd very, and it, Another thing I suppose is like, and I know you'll experience this, but like just the mix of cultures, mm. the mix of cultures and the mix of religions, and then trying to find a way to kind of uniformly allow that to just flourish. Yeah. You know, because you, by nature with this type of thing, you have to have, you have to have rules and regulations and, and a structure in place. And at the moment that structure, like you're saying, looks a lot like a prison. But the alternative is, I mean, they're trying to make low cost accommodation effectively mm. as low cost as possible. And it's like the alternative is that they are intense. Um, and then you have to have these rules and regulations and structures because it it's not at the state where it can just be left to a free market to just everyone to just kind of organize themselves and everything. Because that would be if it was one culture and one type of people, maybe one tribe like as you, as you could put it maybe they could organize themselves but when it's like so many different people putting those in like a, a, a melting pot and trying to get a, an answer out or maybe that is the solution maybe the free market is the solution you know like chuck everyone in and kind of like try and make them organize themselves or whatever i don't know like could that work because it's like for the reason i'm saying this is because like where i live raval here it's I can't, I don't want to like misquote this, but it's the guy that's from here. It's like the most multicultural part of, I want to say Spain. Yeah. Um, but or maybe it's of Catalonia or something like that. But there's like a ton of nationalities all melted in a relatively small little neighborhood. Um, I think you remember saying something like 90 something nationalities all yeah. in the same little neighborhood. Um, so you have like, all sorts of Asian, you have all sorts of African, North African, all sorts of European here. Um, and people get on. And there's like, yeah, people get on. 
but that's that's not by design that's by free market do you know what i mean it's like this is where the lower cost housing is mm. um or originally it was like these were like kind of ghettos where originally it was where the the sailors would come and there was like loads of prostitutes and loads of um and like loads of bars and it's like relatively close to the port so the people would come off the ships the sailors would come off the ships go to the bars um find some sex workers and then have their way and then and then that was it but that was like this neighbor then this neighbor just formed from that mm. and then because of that you ended up getting loads of migrants that come here um and, and then the neighborhood formed into this free market and to be honest considering that there are like all these different nationalities and there's a lot of poverty and depravity um like relative to compared yeah. to everywhere else um here considering it's in the city center it's like there is relative peace yeah there's like a fair amount of pickpocketing a few muggings um but violent crime is relatively low and when there is violent crime it tends to be and i've seen quite a few videos of this which are pretty crazy like in the middle of the day on just like streets where people are walking past there'll be like machete attacks yeah okay. um but that will be a north african gang versus a north african gang um probably over drugs or mm. like sex workers that they're like controlling mm. and like probably it's some sort of like money or blood feud which is like i was speaking to someone recently like you know if that's happening okay these people hack at each other with a machete but they're not really they're not hacking at anyone else so yeah. it's kind of like it's not good but it's like in terms of keeping the peace i think the bus owner does a pretty good job of keeping the peace and there are loads of police that patrol the streets um does that make of... you feel safer that police are patrolling the streets yeah definitely does it 100 percent um yeah yeah 100 percent. because like there's police cars going up and down all the time um and the police here are quite brutal compared to like compared to the uk i mean they... I, I know what the greece greek police are like so yeah i mean that's what i mean i think that like i've never seen police brutality in the uk I've not witnessed it anyway. Not, per um, not personally. I've heard of it happening and I'm sure it happens like all the time, but I've yeah. not personally seen it. Whereas like here I've seen a policeman knock someone out, um, just like clothesline this guy and knock him out and then not put him in the recovery position because he doesn't want to touch him then. So um, why does that make you feel safer? Because that it makes, makes me, feel... me frightened of the police because... No, but like for it... example, if something goes like they're so over the top and because it's like ex dictatorship here there's like was kind of like more of like a police state like if there is some sort of um just like scuffle on the street or whatever the police about 20 police will be there in about two minutes you know <laughs> yeah because they're so close there's like there's where i live there's like three or four police stations within about five minute walk because it is the epicenter of the city it is it's yeah. bang in the center of the city and it is was more of a ghetto than it is now um so they'll be there and they're like riot vans will come and they'll like block off the street like that even like it's ridiculous sometimes there i saw it happen before with like a guy that was just causing he was drunk and he was shouting at someone in a bar or whatever mm. and like it's ridiculous like there'll literally be like 10 15 police will arrive so quickly and they'll like block off the street and then they'll just kind of like manhandle and search the person or whatever and that makes me feel 
makes me feel more safe because it means that I don't, there is no violence, virtually no violence. Okay, so someone's shouting in a bar and then the load of police come in and start manhandling them and searching them. Yeah. You think that's okay? I don't think it's okay. I'm not saying it's, it's okay, but I'm saying it makes me feel more safe because I'm not shouting at people in bars, so okay. that's not going to happen to me. But what if there was a moment that you were shouting in a bar? I mean, I know you don't, you don't drink anymore, so... <laughs> um, but... Well, I think that if I know, if I know, I know now that if I cause any problems, I will get manhandled by the police, so I don't. Not that I would anyway, but it's like if you're aware of that, it's the same with like... It's the same with bouncers here. In England, you know, as a bouncer, you have to be really careful how you how you operate because you can be sued so easily and taken mm. to court and all those things. And you'll you'll you know the it, it seems like the um the, you're always on the side of the of the victim mm. in the UK. Whereas here it seems to be the reverse. And it's the same with like except for in um in cases of taking companies to court, the victim seems to win all the time. You know, like, you know, if they get fired wrongly or anything like that, there's very strong worker protection here. Um, but like bouncers are sort of free to do what they want. But because of that, you see almost no violence. So it's like, it's not right that the bouncers can kind of whack people if they want to. Or like, like I saw one of them before, these two guys having a fight on the beach. And um, so they were just going at it, like in front of one of the clubs. And one of the bouncers ran over to him. And the guy, like in the heat of the moment, just kind of like turned around and like pushed the bouncer, not realizing who it was. And the bouncer took out a bat and just like smashed him on the kneecap. Oh my God. And he just like fell to the floor, which is obviously a really extreme over the top reaction. And like, that's not okay to be whacking someone and like potentially shattering someone's kneecap just because they're fighting with someone else. That's not acceptable. But the result of that, the result of that is that you just don't really see violence as much as you would anywhere else. You don't see violence outside bars. You don't see violence like rarely see violence on the street. I, I, I'm almost, I'm generally never concerned about someone being violent towards me. Whereas mm. in the UK, I am all the time. But yeah. that's also a that's a thing. That's also partly like a mentality here. From what I see, people tend to shout at each other, really mouthy. But they'll mm. shout at each other, and they will keep shouting each other and be like, sometimes from my balcony on that street, there's a lot of like crazy people that walk up and down, and they'll be like shouting at each other sometimes, and they'll be like right in each other's faces shouting, but they'll there won't be any altercation. Whereas at home. Like if someone comes and starts shouting in your face, someone's yeah. going to get punched yeah, yeah. like really quickly. And I think that's like a big, a big difference. People are way more, people are quicker to use violence in the UK, I would say, than they are here um, from what I've seen. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult line to, it's a difficult line to have, you know, the, the police, like how much power should they have? Do they carry guns? Because um, in the UK, police don't generally carry guns. There are there's a few different types of police here. I think most of them have. I think most of them have guns, handguns. I think, but um, I don't see them pulling guns. I've never seen anyone pull a gun, no. and I've seen like I've seen the police. I've seen the police searching people constantly. Like it happens all the time. Who are they searching? 
generally Moroccans. Yeah. Um, and and it's that's also like a quite a a difficult line to cross because the the drug gangs there's a lot of drug gangs and they are Moroccan. Um, a lot of them are Moroccan run, and there are also a lot of ones that are Pakistani run, and so there are certain people that you see round and about all the time. You know, like in in the neighborhood when you're here, you see the same people hanging around. And you see the same people being searched. Yeah. And it's like when they get searched here in Spain, if you if you, for example, if you steal something and it's worth less than I think it's four or five hundred pounds, it's not considered like a crime that's good enough to go to court. Okay. So you basically they get searched, they get gets the stuff gets taken off them, they might go to court, but then they'll just come back out and bail and just they don't care. So they'll just be wandering around. So I know a guy's a policeman, he said like they arrest the same people constantly because they have to arrest them because they're doing something wrong but nothing will ever happen to them so it's like they literally arrest the same people like 50 times Seems um, like an inefficient use of their resources and so it's like it's one of those things as well where it's like there are moroccan gangs there are, like it's not just moroccans that steal stuff here like the the pickpockets like there are plenty of different types of people but there are moroccan gangs of young moroccans that go around mugging people and pickpocketing people yeah. So then it's like, if you also happen to be a young Moroccan, the chances of you getting searched are probably way higher because unfortunately you fall in, even if you're not someone committing a crime, like you are unfortunately much more likely to be searched because your peers are in gangs that are doing the same thing. And how's the police supposed to know that it's you and not them? It's it's them and not you. So it's like, again, it's one of those things where it's like, it's it's like a double-edged sword. And sometimes I feel like, you know, there are obviously police who do terrible things, abuse their power, um, totally corrupt and all these things. But then there are plenty of people who are just trying to do a good job, but can't really do anything about the problems that are there. And like, even when they go and they bust, sometimes you'll see them doing like drug busts. And there's a Vice documentary, they're called Narco Pisos, which are like narco, narcotics, piso yeah. flat, like drug flats. And there was a, a device documentary about Barcelona where they go and just bust all these flats um, and they just turn the flats into crack dens, basically. Um, but then you go bust one flat and then another one will just open up next door. And like, you know, you bust one gang leader and find them with like every so often you'll see it. You see it happening on the street, like I'm just like busting down doors and like all these riot vans going in. Yeah. And maybe they'll recover like, I don't know, like two kilos of coke or something like that yeah but it's like what about all the other like 100 kilos or something that's probably just like on the same street dotted around so it's like i don't know i always feel not sorry for them but it's like it must be a really irritating job where you a lot of what you do is making absolutely no difference to anything yeah <laughs> it's because i don't know it's like i don't know it's like you're 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 basically trying to prohibit people from doing things and keep people safe at the same time. Yeah. But you're also people are hating you and being violent towards you and you have to protect yourself because what if those people have got knives or something and what if those people that you're trying to stop and prohibit from doing something they decide to get violent towards you. And I always feel like I always feel especially sorry for the police in America. And yeah, they abuse their powers and there's loads of examples of them shooting people when they shouldn't and all this. But imagine going to a crime scene uh, with some people who are causing trouble and knowing that they've all probably got guns 
and like you know like the the stress that would put you under going somewhere and not knowing if if you're gonna tap on someone's window and be like excuse me can i see your driving license and they're just gonna pull a gun and blast you in the face mm. like i don't know it's crazy and that's why again of course it's not like i don't know i'll probably get people hating me like oh you love the police and i'm like i don't i'm just saying like people hate on them but I, I wouldn't fancy doing their job myself no thank you no i would never be a police officer be horrible but i don't share your sympathy for the police in the u.s i'm afraid <laughs> have you ever been stopped and searched here i've been stopped when whilst in a car so not really stopped i've stopped yeah. myself and then because you look a bit dodgy <laughs> no, because I was driving a souped-up car that <laughs> made me look dodgy. What? Wait, in the UK? In the UK, yeah. 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 I've not been stopped not here. Again. No, I have, sorry. I have been stopped once. I was, I got fined for, I, I mean, I was hammered, but I got fined for drinking on the street on mm. a day of this festival. It's the biggest festival in Barcelona um, where the whole street everywhere is filled with people drinking on the street yeah. for like days it's called La Merced and it's like this like big festival thing Yeah. and um, I got fined for drinking on the street at an outdoor <laughs> festival where That's everyone nice. was drinking and I was being so polite to the people but like the guy, in fairness the guy was he was like because we were like Larry English people whatever and then I was the only one that could speak Spanish so he was speaking to me but he was kind of um he was like raring for a fight basically so that mm. was my experience then um he was like wanting me to kind of wanting a reaction wanting a reaction and i was just like totally calm i was just like can you please explain why I'm, <laughs> why am i being like searched and why am i being um he's yeah. like oh yeah and he didn't really mention i was gonna be fined and i just received a fine like I don't know how many weeks later through the door. I was like, what? Damn. The only person probably to get fine drinking on the street at an outdoor <laughs> festival where they, everyone is drinking on the street. Um, <laughs> so ridiculous. I was, I was, I was. Yeah, I was, and you're usually quite lucky with things. Yeah, I know. And I, I wasn't even, that's the thing. I wasn't even being like, fortunately, I'm not an aggressive person. So I wasn't even being like aggressive or yeah. anything. I was just kind of like. Trying to reason. Trying to reason, but being really drunk. So. He was probably just like, this guy's a total moron. Um, <laughs> I need to get my fine quotas up. Um, let's talk about your car in the UK. <laughs> let's talk about my car in the UK. I'll try to get a photo of it. So yeah. my car in the UK, my my first car when I was 17, I wanted a souped up boy racer car. And that is what you and got. that is exactly <laughs> what I got. I managed to get myself a Vauxhall Corsa. Um, that's Opal Corsa, I think, for anyone that's not in the UK. And it was... It had a body kit on it. It had alloy wheels, four like exhausts. Blue lighting in blue lighting when you open up the doors, blue headlights, personalized number plate, tinted windows, spoiler, um, lowered. It was amazing. And I I think I got an absolute bargain. I paid two thousand three hundred pounds for it and it had nine thousand pounds of modifications on it. <laughs> and so I think the if you want a cheap car, people, get a modified car because the moment people start modifying it, it lowers the value <laughs> of the car. So you can get yourself a lovely boy racer car um, and then you can just be driving around and just be cool. You know, it's, it's what everybody wants. But I've been stopped in that. I got stopped in that car 
a fair few times. It doesn't surprise um, me. But in fairness, all of my encounters with the police then were very pleasant. Um, and I actually got away with a lot of things I shouldn't have got away with. But I mm. think it's probably due to utter confusion from the police because they see this like <laughs> boy racer car expecting to open the window and some gangster to be there and just be rude to them. Obviously they see a gangster, me. Um, but then I just talk and like always try and like crack a few jokes and be friendly. And then they've always just been really nice to me and just let me away with anything <laughs> wrong I was doing, which I won't go into. Um, but, no? um, but, um, so yeah, it's just, they've always been very pleasant to me. So I suppose maybe that taints my view. Maybe if I was a minority or something like that, but then we also live in like quite a nice little town where not that much bad stuff really happens. Now it doesn't even have a police station. No, they got rid of it. They got they? rid of the quite police station because now no one policing the streets of Marlow. Yeah. So if you do want to commit a crime, you you probably got at least... At least like 12 minutes, I would say, from when you commit the crime to the quickest a police car could get there. No. You don't do, yeah. From what? Wickham Police Station? Yeah, if you bombed it. If, you bomb, if you're in a police car and everything has to get out of your way, you could bomb it in 12 minutes. Maybe in your old Corsa. <laughs> yeah, maybe my old Corsa. <laughs> I think, though, that like the, the idea is with police and ambulances and stuff that they have a reaction time where areas are supposed to be able to be reached by someone within a certain mm. amount of time. And I think... Want to say that that I can't remember if it's eight or twelve minutes. Eight minutes seems too quick. But then again, if you're going sixty miles an hour, I guess if you came down the bypass, but then you'd have to go across the bridge, and they've narrowed those bollard things. So, but yeah, if you're going sixty miles an hour though, and you go, then that's a mile a minute. So you could get pretty far in eight minutes if you absolutely bomb it. And everyone's like getting out of your way. Yeah, but you're not going at sixty miles an hour like. Um, what's it called? Marlow Hill and down the other side. It might be. Average of 60 miles an hour. If you can bomb it in the car and everyone gets out of your way. I feel like this is a really boring topic. <laughs> I don't agree with you, but how, fine. How quickly can I it... How quickly, at least 15 minutes. <laughs> how quickly can a, a vehicle arrive response time? Um, so I think that we have covered a lot of pretty nice topics today. Um, it's becoming a bit of noise outside, so I think maybe we should wrap it up mm. for now. Um, before we leave, what are your words of wisdom? I know you're a bit nervous about giving these because you have to delve deep into that fountain of wisdom for yourself. Um, words of wisdom. Yeah, it's a bit tricky because I don't feel I'm that wise. <laughs> um, I think if there's anything I've learned to do in like the last six months, it's to be a lot more present and not think or worry too much about the future. And I think of like my early 20 year old self was just constantly doing and just, yeah, running on adrenaline and blah, 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 and mm. not really spending much time reflecting on things and, and also like reflecting on achievements in life and stuff that's gone really well. And friendships, relationships, etc. So I think it's just to kind of slow down a bit. Like, 20s flew by. I don't know if it did for you as well. Um, but it feels, yeah, like the first time going to Samos, 22, that doesn't feel like almost nine years ago. And nine years ago? No. <laughs> <laughs> my maths, okay. <laughs> Need to work on my maths as well. How many is that? Seven years ago? Yeah, seven. Seven. Um, 
Yeah, so I think it would be to be more present, to reflect, to journal. That's That's been good. Mm-hmm. Journaling, don't if you do that. I do. Shamefully not enough, but I do. No, yeah, I try I mean, to do it. I do it every... I do it every full moon and every new moon. And that's what I do. Okay. So once every two weeks. Yeah. Which is not enough, but yeah. it's okay for now. Um... Yeah, I would say that. Okay. Wisdom. Yeah, I think it's like so important to focus on the positives as well as the negatives and yeah. give credit where credit's due. Like I was speaking about this with Emma earlier with a lady that we've invited on. She's, she hates talking about herself and is always is not self-deprecating, but just like thinks that her achievements are not achievements. Mm. And it's like, it's it's very strange because, you know... We, it's sometimes difficult to think of yourself in a positive light. Yeah. But we should be able to objectively think of what we've done. You know, like objectively, you have done a law degree. Not many people can do that. You've done a law master's. Not many people can do that. You've uh, like gone to Samos and volunteered there. Not many people do that. So objectively, what you've done is different, at least, and difficult. Mm. Um, so it's like objectively, that's good. And it's the same with a lot of people. But it's like focusing on the positives because it's so easy to be like well i've failed at this i haven't done that i'm not that good at this but it's like really like we're all there's loads of stuff that we're good at loads of stuff that we've done well and i think it's so so important to be to think these things through yeah focus on the positives and yeah credit say yes to things see your friends yeah do podcasts do podcasts um and finally what say someone listening to this has been like a penny's dropped in their head and they're like oh my god there's all these refugees out there i need to go help um what do they do um like there's a lot of stuff you can do in the uk i'm not so familiar with the organizations in the the, um uk because i'm not really based in the uk anymore but in greece there's loads of places that need volunteers um, in all different areas, whether it be teaching English, providing, you know, safe spaces for people, working in um, places that provide food for people, um, legal support. You know, if you want to physically go and volunteer, there's loads of stuff online. There's also Samos Volunteers. Great. So Samos is S-A-M-O-S volunteers dot com dot org dot org. Yeah, mate. I think right. Dog. Right. Yeah. Okay. You should I probably should. know that, but we will um we will we will link this <laughs> anyway, and I'll probably put it in yeah. the in the beginning. Intro. Um. But yeah. Or if you know you don't have the time to go and volunteer, you can also send money to organisations, especially um, with grassroots organisations. You what are grassroots? Grassroots are sort of small organisations that are like kind of run like we don't have any funding or anything from the government or outside influences we don't have big sponsors big donors um so it's kind of small scale small impact stuff but um you know that 99 percent of the money well basically all of it is going on the services that are being provided to people um in the last couple of years we now have 
stipends, so a small amount of money to support the field coordinators um, every month, so just to cover their accommodation, food and stuff, which is kind of essential when you need people to stay longer term. But all of the rest of the money goes on providing support to the people that need it most. Okay, <clears throat> amazing. And can people contact you if they've got any questions? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> of course. <laughs> How do they find you? Um, what did I give out my no number? I don't, well, I don't know, Instagram or oh. Facebook? Okay, I mean, I don't really use Facebook. You can find me on Instagram <laughs> at Jasmine Doust. So Jasmine with an E on the end. D-O-U-S-T. Mm -hmm. um, or you can email me, actually, jasmine at samosvolunteers.org. Okay. Amazing. So hopefully we will have converted some people into Samos volunteers with this chat. I hope so. Um, and bit by bit, we can make the world a better place. Jasmine, um, oh, I have one thing. Mm. Um, I have a present for you. Ooh. Oh, no, it's not broccoli. I mean, I am vegan, so getting broccoli as a present <laughs> happens quite often. It is. Dun, dun, dun. A Quest for Wisdom t-shirt. Ah, that's nice. Ooh. It's very exciting. Oh, lovely. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank um, you right, much. give me a hug. Thank you very much. Goodbye, everybody. Farewell. You gotta say goodbye. Oh, bye. Thank you for listening to the Quest for Wisdom podcast with your host, Connor Monaghan. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to support the show, then please like it, subscribe, and leave a review on whichever platform you are using. This small act is a massive help and is hugely appreciated. You can find more information about all of our guests on thequestforwisdom.com and follow us at The Quest for Wisdom on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter for exciting updates. We also have a Patreon account for anyone who would like to contribute towards the running of the show. Finally, I would like to thank the Comedy Clubhouse in Barcelona for allowing us to record here and for their ongoing support. If you are ever in Barcelona, make sure to check it out for daily shows of comedy and performance art in English. Farewell for now.